Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Hi, Global Investors. Before we get started with today's episode, are you looking to finance your U.S. real estate investment as a foreign investor? Contact UniversalCommercialCapital.com. They do not require any credit history, employment, income verification, or permanent residency status. All you need to have is the minimum 35% down payment in a U.S. banking institution for two months. Rates start at 6% with a 30-year term. The whole approval process can be completed in 30 days. Call 888 888- 334-9039 or email them at info at universalcommercialcapital.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today we have Mauricio Rauld. Mauricio is the founder of Premier Law Group, a securities law firm based in Southern California and focuses on assisting real estate investors with staying compliant when raising money from passive investors. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. Really, uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, that's great. Um, so are you able to give a little background professionally on yourself before you started your current law firm? Oh, man, I hate, I hate talking about myself too much. But yeah, so I started my law firm uh, in about 2006. So um, before that, I went, I did what every you know, lawyer or law student dreams of doing, really. Like, I went and worked for a large uh, law firm, uh, really one of the largest, the largest law firm in Long Beach, California, where I did securities work and I did litigation. So I represented sort of the JP Morgans and the Prudentials and the Goldman Sachs and uh, the Merrill Lynch's of the world. Uh, but it was all litigation. So it was always, you know, something already happened. There was a lawsuit. I would be the, the one who got the complaint. And then it was my job to go through that litigation process, you know, put a response together, do the discovery, the depositions, the motions, the trial work, the appellate work, that whole thing, um, which, was, which was great. That's where I cut my teeth. But um, I did that for about seven years just really knew that's not what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I've shared my story many times that I just kind of luckily for me realized, I think it was after reaching, it was after reading that Rich Dad Poor Dad, mm. great book by uh, Robert Kiyosaki. I just knew that's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so thanks to Robert's book, I connected with the real estate guys mm. uh, and then made the decision to, to leave the law firm and go work in house for the real estate guys. And that's kind of where I really cut my teeth on the syndication piece, still securities, but now instead of doing, you know, the litigation part, which is when everything's already gone south, it's on the front end, making sure that we're doing the securities work properly, which is a lot more fun, actually, because now everybody's interests are aligned. There's no, there's no battle between the lawyers. It's the client. Every, you know, everybody actually likes to work with me now because they need me and our firm to, to get to their goal of, of raising capital and closing on a particular property. So it's been a, a nice transition that happened uh, back in 06. Yeah, I saw Robert Helm speak uh, live a few months back. He's great. He's a, he's, he's a great and real estate investor. Brings yeah. a lot of different experience to the table. Yeah. Um, with, with real estate investing being so unpopular these days, especially like syndication, there's a ton of inaccurate information I see online and mostly on social media. Are you able to give an, an overview of what the typical, I mean, regulation D is normally and the 506C, 506B, which is most likely what real estate people are going to be using when, when bundling money, let's say, for purchasing a property. Can you give a yeah. little background on, on, those, on that regulation? 
Yeah, so just a quick step back. Anytime people are raising money and selling securities, we either have to register that security with the SEC or we need to find one of these exemptions, right? Or otherwise it's illegal is kind of my third joke. But we never register things, so we always look for exemptions. And by far the most popular one is the one that you referenced, Rule 506B as in boy. Um, and the reason that's so popular is because a couple things. Number one, it provides us with certainty. Uh, it's a safe harbor, which means if we comply with all the terms, then we're kind of assured of being in compliance. And, and certainty is obviously a nice thing for us. We don't want to be doing things and having to argue in front of judges or regulators to try and figure out if we did it right. Like we want to know that we did it right. Um, and the other reason is we, it's a federal statute. And so we don't have to worry about the, the state rules and regulations. So we don't have to go hire an attorney in every single state that we're talking to investors or, or getting money from investors, which would become really expensive and cumbersome and time consuming and honestly a nightmare if you had to go compare and contrast, you know, eight different statutes from eight different states. So mm -hmm. that's why it's so popular. And uh, just as a really quick high-end summary, you know, with a 506B, you're allowed to raise an unlimited amount of money, which is why some of those prior clients I had, the JP Morgans and the Merrill Lynch's, they use 506B to raise billions of dollars. I mean, mm -hmm. I used to say, I used to reference there was a JP Morgan real estate fund that was 1.2 billion, but I just saw, and I posted it about a month ago, uh, a Blackstone uh, fund that was $20 billion. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you look at the filing, it's a 506B. Mm -hmm. Just like, just like the ones that you and I do. Wow. <laughs> so it, it's an unlimited raise, which allows you, obviously gives you a lot of flexibility. And it allows you actually to accept, for us smaller folks that are not JP Morgan, <laughs> it allows us to accept a limited number of non-accredited investors, which is one of the most attractive things for us, meaning we can take friends and family who may not be a, a high net worth individual, you know, accredited investor, you've got to have a million dollars in net worth, excluding your personal residence or have earned $200,000 the last couple of years with a reasonable expectation of earning it this year. So with a 506B, you can take uh, investors who don't have that high net worth uh, up to a certain amount. You're, you're limited to 35, but that typically doesn't come into play. Um, and, but the big, the big whammy or the big negative of 506B is, is really you just cannot advertise. Um, so you cannot go to the marketplace on you know, podcasts or running ads in whatever media, traditional, social, uh, about your deal or podcasting. Um, you just can't do that. And so you really have to stick with friends and family and people you have a, what's called a pre-existing substantive relationship because uh, it is meant to be a private offering and not, uh, not out to the public. So that's, that, those are kind of the, the, big, the big three things from a 506B. There's a couple other small ones, but that's kind of the big, the big ones. So advertising is illegal for when I'm, if I have a 506B and I have a, I have a deal already in a contract and that's what I'm planning on doing. So I can't obviously bring that to investors that I'm, I don't have a prior relationship with. How are syndicators able to promote their businesses without promoting the offering? Yeah, that's a, t that's a fine line. So, uh, and I've, I've spent a lot of time the last couple of months on social media talking about this. Um, you know, you, you cannot obviously talk about the offer. We just went through those rules. Yeah. So you can't talk about your deal, but you know, you've got a business to run, right? So, you know, you can certainly, the SEC has recognized that you can go ahead and talk about your business. You can talk about what your business does, what you do, what your credentials are, um, and continue to market your services like you, you do you know, anything else. Uh, you can also clearly do value ads, which is why the podcasts generally are really a cool tool if if done properly, because you know a good podcast is is 
exclusively a value add, you know, you're just providing great information with great guests and great information. So, so that's another thing you can definitely do. But, but the, the tricky part is, is, is people have this tendency to, to not stay the course. And so they, they talk about their business or they talk about themselves or they do a nice value add piece. But inevitably what happens is they, they cross that line and they throw in the, Hey, look, if you want to learn how to make a lot of money, uh, you know, if you want 20% returns, give us a call. And that's where things kind of cross the line. Uh, it's really, you know, just, just making sure that you stick to that. It's, it's, I think it's very difficult to do, which is why my position has been, if you have an active deal, I mean, I mean, two things. One is if you have an active deal, I recommend people just stay off of social media relating to real estate or the business, you know, post about your kids, post about everything else. Fine. But just don't, don't even play that game. And then when you don't have an offering going, then value add and talk about your business. But the other thing that I've started to talk about quite a bit, uh, and you'll probably see a little bit more of it uh, coming up here shortly is if you're going to play that game, which is a, a fine line where you're just talking about your business and what you do, or again, my favorite is the value add. So, so putting out articles uh, about, you know, why real estate is such a great uh, investment vehicle or why, you know, the state of Texas or the, you know, Plano, Texas is a great market. You can do those value add pieces, but if you're going to do that, you want to make sure that you are steady. Like you are just consistent with those posts. Meaning if you're going to post once a day or once a week or whatever your consistency is, just post once a week or once a month. What you don't want to do, which I see a lot of is somebody doesn't post anything. They're, they're never on social media. They're never on podcast. They never do anything about their business. They never give any value add. They never do anything about their business, but lo and behold, two weeks before an offering, you suddenly see an uptick in the activity of these people, you know, talking about themselves and, and talking about social media because what they're trying, I'm sorry, talking about um, value add because they really are trying to get people interested in their deal. And then, you know, as soon as the deal's done, they go back to doing absolutely nothing. So mm. you have this bell curve that exists where no, nothing is gets posted or no advertise or no, no posts at all. And then there's a kind of a bell curve. And then, and then as soon as the deal's over, it goes down. That's not a good look because, you know, the, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be obvious that what you're doing is trying to, you know, garner some interest with your offering. And, and, and it's just, it's just a tougher sell. Um, you know, why would you just suddenly magically post a couple of weeks before your offering and then stop posting afterwards? Yeah. Yeah. The consistent value add is what I see from operators that I believe are doing it correctly that are dealing with 506 Bs. Obviously with the 506 C, they can pretty much put anything they want and you can tell it when you go to their website because they're very specific yeah. on past deals. Yeah. You, you do still want to be careful with 506C. 506C is not a license to do whatever you want to do. I think that's something else that people are not realizing. I think I'm starting to see more and more people do 506C. So I think this is why it's mm -hmm. coming up a lot. But even in a 506C, I would be cautious about, you know, giving really specific details about the returns or the IRR or anything like that because the anti-fraud provisions still apply, which means you've got to give everybody, you know, full disclosure of the information that you're giving. So you can't just tell somebody they're going to make 20% and then not tell them kind of what the risks are. But obviously there's no room in a post, in a Twitter post or a Facebook post yeah. or an Instagram post. There's no room for that. So unless you're prepared to just put the big fat disclaimer on your post, I would say to a little bit more of a broader look, hey, I've got a 100-unit apartment complex under, under contract. I'm looking for investors. And, and, you know, on a 506C, you can definitely do that. And then point them to your website or point them yeah. to a page. And then there you can get a little bit more granular because there you've got way more room to, to put all the, the disclosure, at least, at least preliminary disclosures, because obviously the main disclosures are going to be in your PPM.
Right. Yeah. All the disclosures, any disclaimers, um, where they can learn more, obviously. Um, yeah, that's great. So for syndicators looking to accept money from foreign investors, uh, what should they, what should they keep in mind when preparing to do it? And then during the process, let's say. Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of people do have international investors. Um, a couple of things you want to think about first, may or may not apply to you, but if all of your investors happen to be outside of the US, all of them, and you're not doing any marketing efforts in the US, uh, you're not sell, selling or marketing or have any investors in the US, 100% of everything's going happening offshore, mm-hmm. then the SEC doesn't care. Like they don't care about international investors, they only care about US people. So there's actually a, a, an exemption called Regulation S, Reg S, that deals with scenarios where all of your investors are abroad, and um, you don't have to worry about 506B, 506C. Again, the SEC doesn't care. Now, if you've only got a few investors out there or there's a mix and you're still doing a 506B, the other things you've got to think about primarily are you, you become kind of an IRS agent when you're dealing with international investors because you are required by the IRS to withhold 30% of international investors' monies prior to sending them over, over, overseas. And, um, and the reason for that is quite simply, you know, there's really no incentive for the foreign investor to file taxes in the U.S. And so if you, if you don't withhold it, they're, they're going to be gone. They're, they're not going to be filing any tax returns in the U.S. So right. this is the way a mechanism that the IRS has to kind of get that money. And the sponsor and the company uh, could be responsible uh, for that tax if they do not withhold and then the investor does not file a U.S. tax return. So that's something you want to be really careful about. The other issue that comes up is obviously even though on, a, on the foreign soil, the U.S. may not care about the, the foreign investor. The, the local rules and regulations obviously apply. So if you're raising money from somebody, let's say in Canada, then you obviously want to make sure if you're traveling to Canada and you're doing it there, that you want to make sure you're complying with Canadian mm-hmm. securities laws. Or if you're in Brazil, Brazilian, if you're in, you know, in Europe, whatever, you want to make sure you're complying with those securities laws. And then I think the last thing I would mention is just remember that not all countries recognize our entity structures. So we typically use LLCs, limited liability companies, but again, picking on Canada, can, can, Canada does not recognize the LLC. They don't know what that is. Just like there's a couple, there's a bunch of other entities worldwide that we have no idea what they look like. And so if you create an LLC and bring in an investor from Canada, the Canadian government looks at, looks at that as a corporation, a default. It doesn't recognize the LLC, so it defaults to a corporation, which results in a double taxation, as we know, for the Canadian investors. So I've had situations where Canadian investments are really upset at the end of the year because when they consult with their tax professionals in Canada, they, you know, they get double tax and their returns get withered down to almost nothing and it's not really worth the investment anymore. And so they start complaining and you may have to return their money. So it's just really important. And then there's ways around that. So once you recognize that, you know, in, in Canada specifically, they recognize limited partnerships. So we just kind of do that as a funnel. Other countries may recognize other entities. So you just want to be cognizant of that and make sure that you're structuring your offering to make sure that, uh, that the foreign investors, uh, their countries recognize the, that entity. Yeah, it's really having a, having a CPA that you can speak to that is well-versed in knowing tax treaties, knowing about foreign investors, and that can handle that part for you when it comes to distributions for your investors. It's critical. It's, if you're going to deal with, or maybe I should add that to my list, uh, if you're going to deal with international investors or accept internet, you really want to have a, a, CP, a really good CPA that has experience in cross-border transactions. Uh, because not only on this, you know, 30% withholding, but just all those other little things that come up 
you want to make sure you're dealing with somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah. One last thing I've heard from CPAs as well is when, so for this is for uh, syndicators is that don't take any money internationally. Make sure it's been sitting, it's in from a US bank account being sent to you because it doesn't matter what's, who are you are as a syndicator, you don't have access to a hundred plus anti-money laundering department at Bank of America that can do their due diligence on X person and Y uh, entity. So yeah, just- the anti-money laundering is definitely another issue there. And uh, again, I think if you go through the, like you mentioned, you're spot mm-hmm. on. If you go through a, you know, most, most, not most, all monies that come in internationally actually have to go through an, what's called an intermediary bank before it gets mm-hmm. to your local bank. And that's where they're going to do their due diligence. Um, you know, wh- one other thing I may want to point out, because this has happened too, is because of all these anti-money laundering rules, that's not so much that, you know, what are the odds of you accepting money from somebody, you know, that's laundering money, but more importantly, that money might get, it has been frozen, meaning the money comes in, especially if it's a large amount, like you know, this particular gentleman that I that wasn't a client, but he was telling the story where he had a $5 million check come in from overseas. Well, $5 million is a big number. And so that causes a freeze at the bank level and it has to go through all these levels of approval. Like, I mean, actually the government has the right to take that money. It might take two or three weeks for them to clear the money and give it back to you. Wow. In the meantime, this guy had a Monday morning close. And so he was like sweating bullets because he couldn't get access to the 5 million and he had a close in, in things. So one of the things you probably want to do is if you're expecting a large wire from, from an international, when I say a large amount, you know, probably 500 or a million bucks, then uh, I would probably check with your local banker just to make sure, hey, what, what, what information do you need from me or from the investor so that we can make this as smooth as possible? Do you need a passport? Do you need ID? You know, what do you need so that when this money comes, there's no surprises and I can actually use it within a reasonable amount of time? Yeah, no, that's all great information that, um, that every syndicator and every passive investor should be aware of before they get involved with a, with a transaction like this, especially when funds are not 100% in the United States already. So um, yeah. one, one thing I want to circle back to, and you're talking about different entity structures and not to go into the taxes, but to go into, um, I saw you put up a post a few months ago about land trusts not having asset protection, where I think every investor in the United States that holds real estate uses an LLC for the most part, right? If they're not flipping for passive investing, let's say. Um, So can you give us a little overview of of land trusts, what what they're really used for and what, why they're not asset protection? I mean, land trusts, like you said, most people do use LLCs, uh, maybe limited partnerships as well, but uh, some, some, and it's primarily in Florida, to be honest with you. So, so I mean, Florida land, Florida land trusts are big, um, just are big for, I don't honestly don't know why, um, but the one thing to consider is that all trusts, including your living trusts, um, are not, have no asset protection value unless they are an irrevocable trust. Meaning once I set up the trust and I transfer the assets into the trust, I no longer have control or the ability to do anything with them. I can't take the money out. I can't, I mean, it's literally an irrevocable trust, which usually is used as an estate planning tool to pass on, you know, your, your assets to your heirs. Uh, or, you know, what a lot of people do in the asset protection world, especially when you get to a certain level, is you have an asset protection trust, which is, again, different from a living trust, which is different from a land trust. So unless it's an asset protection trust or an irrevocable mm-hmm. trust, it doesn't have any asset protection value. So the land trusts are typically, they're definitely revocable. The argument for them is that they provide privacy, which they do. And so when you own real estate in the trust, um, it, it just provides a level of privacy, but you can, 
you can obtain that same level of privacy through LLCs if done right. I mean, if you just create an LLC in Texas and that's not going to do it, but if you combine the LLC with a, you know, with a management company that's in a state that has privacy, then there are definitely ways. I mean, we do this all the time that we can basically make you invisible if we wanted to in terms of the public records of your ownership. Um, the way that you get around that, which is fine. So if you have a land trust, you have to have the beneficiary of that trust be an LLC. So you end up doing it twice. So you still have the same LLC that you would have set up if you didn't have the trust, but you have the trust as well. Mm. And um, so anyway, so I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the trust. I don't, I don't want to, there may be some other reasons to have it, but certainly not from an asset protection standpoint, because it does just like your living trust. A lot of people say, well, I've got my house in my living trust. I'm protected. And that's not the case at all. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it is big in Florida. It's, it's uh, funny that you say that because I, I know a lot of wholesalers that uh, preach about using the living trust as uh, asset protection, as they call it. Yeah. But well, um, one, one caveat, because this, this may be, and I know this, this happens in, uh, although I, I actually looked into it in Pennsylvania, but sometimes there's, there's a tax reason to do it. Um, although I never got to the bottom of this, but there are some, you know, when you transfer real estate, there's typically some, some states and some uh, jurisdictions have high transfer taxes. And so sometimes having a, a, a trust may negate that transfer tax. And so, again, there may be other uses for it, but it would not be an asset protection use. All right. Okay. Yeah, mainly privacy. That's what I've, that's what I've heard. So um, you work with a lot of different syndicators. What are, what are common mistakes or pitfalls that you see with syndicators and overlooked items or something of that sort? Yeah, I think the number one the number one mistake I see is just people not realizing that they're they're dealing with securities, honestly. So if they're first time syndicators, they don't even know they don't know any better. They're just like, hey, I'm just raising some money. Why is the SEC even involved? Like I just want to get a couple of friends together and take their money and do this deal. And usually there's smaller amounts, but then this is great on bigger pockets. And then somebody be like, Hey, you know, you really should talk to a securities lawyer. And they're like, What do you mean? Why? <laughs> so that's kind of on the newbie side. But then on the more seasoned side, it's just people try, trying to get around the securities laws by coming up with some, you know, interesting structure or it's like, well, I'm not, I won't bring my investors in as an LLC. It'll be a loan or it'll be a, a side contract or a profit sharing agreement, or a, maybe we'll do a TIC agreement. That's one of my favorites mm -hmm. or the joint venture. And at the end of the day, as you, you probably heard me beat this one like a drum, you know, anytime the structure itself doesn't matter, right? So whether it's an LLC, a profit sharing, a TIC, a joint, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's if you're taking money from investors where the returns are generated by your efforts, it's a security. In other words, if your investors are passive and you're active, even with a, even with well, a joint venture, by definition, it would not be a joint venture, but profit sharing agreements, side letters, high fives, handshakes, it doesn't matter. Um, so that's probably one of the biggest mistakes. The next one we kind of alluded to a little bit is just people posting on social media yeah. all along uh, with, the, with a 506B deal. Uh, I see this all the time. Um, I've been trying to, it's kind of tough because I'm, you know, I'm friends with most of them. So I, I can't just put the post off there as an example, but I, so I'm sorry to take it from other sources, but uh, people posting on social media is, is a big one. Mm -hmm. And then the other one that's becoming a big one that I've also been uh, a little bit of a broken record on is uh, just paying people to raise money for you. Um, you know, people aren't aware, they're not lawyers, so that makes sense. They're not aware of all the licensing requirements that you need in order to raise money. And when you're raising money for yourself or you're a sponsor or co-sponsor, then there's some exemptions you can rely on. But the amount of people that I see that are just purely money raisers that get compensated, you know, a percentage of the GP, depending on how much money they raise or bring into the deal. And that's the only, the only thing they do 
that's broker dealer activity. They're acting, basically raising money without a license. And it's an issue for the syndicator because the syndicator doesn't disclose that, right? Why would they? They're not disclosing that um, they're paying somebody, they're paying an unlicensed broker to raise money for them. Uh, and then on the on the person side, they're obviously practicing without a license, and so uh, you know th their penalty is is disgorgement. They've got to return the money plus interest. But I, I don't care too much about them. I care more about my clients that are syndicators, and so that's that's what I wrestle with is just making sure they understand that, you know, you know sometimes you just need to raise that extra couple hundred grand to get it over the finish line. And it's very tempting to have somebody who come in and do it in exchange for compensation, but can't do it. Yeah, make sure that every person that's involved in the general partnership has some sort of uh, role in addition to bringing capital to the deal. They've so, got to be, um, yeah, the key words there that they've got to have substantial duties and their primary role needs to be something other than raising money. And to me, primary just means, you know, more than 50%. So look at all the activities you're doing. Is more time spent raising money or is more time spent doing other things like due diligence and underwriting and investor relations and, you know, visiting the property and, you know, everything else that uh, syndicators do talking right. to the lawyer. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, one more thing too, just for the listeners, uh, when he said TIC, it's tenants in common, which we won't yes. get into. You can just right. Google that um, on your own. Cause it's a very in-depth uh, there's all different facets to it. But um, so Mauricio, when should a, when should a syndicator contact you to start the process? Say they, when, when do you like to hear from them? As soon as possible. Um, typically I've always recommended people call the attorney as soon as they get into LOI, mm. uh, just because again, at that point you've identified the property and we can now have, you know, substantial conversations about the particular property. You've got, you've probably got a property package. We can start the conversation. Uh, now that we're also doing the real estate and transactional piece, we're also now working on the purchase and sale agreement. So obviously we want to get involved at the LOI stage because we'll, we'll probably have three or four days to get a purchase and sale agreement drafted and ready to go. So it's gotta be early, you know. I know that some people will either argue or even teach that you want to wait until do, you clear due diligence before contacting the attorney because, hey, what, you know, the risk is let, you, know, you pay the attorney a big fee and then you end up deciding you're not going to move forward on the property. Uh, my response to that is it just puts a lot of pressure on everyone because now you've cleared contingencies and now you've got a little, not that much time to raise money and it takes a while. The process does take a little bit, although we do have a pretty fast turnaround speed. But, you know, I alleviated that a while ago by just, um, you know, just giving a, you know, just a credit. So like, hey, look, if you end up pulling out for whatever reason on due diligence, we just credit you to the next one anyway. So I, I try oh. to take away that risk and really encourage people because I really wanted, we make, we make so many decisions on the front end of how we're going to do this offering. And so a lot of what, what tends to happen is if I get a call too late in the process, we may have this discussion and be like, Hey, I want to do a 506 B because I want to take non-accredited investors. And it turns out they've been posting on social media for the last couple of weeks or a couple of months because they didn't know. And so we just tie our hands. That's why it's so critical to do it early because we, we can make all these decisions on the front end, come up with a game plan. And then we can then, you know, disseminate that information and talk to our investors in accordance with whatever rules and regulations we're going to pick, what exemption we're going to go with. Okay, great. So after the LOI is executed, then they can reach out to you, let you know, and kind of uh, start working with you. And it's great that you're able to do that with the credit to next deal. So I haven't heard that from other attorneys. So that's awesome. I just try and eliminate, you know, I just try and eliminate the risk from, from people. Um, yeah. So I mean, we, 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 we've been tinkering. I mean, we do, we've been doing this for a long time. So uh, we, we, we tend to listen to our clients. And so we tweak things to, to make it as easy as, and fr as frictionless as possible for our clients. So Mauricio, how can our listeners learn more about you and your firm? 
Look, the you know best way to get a hold of me is is either through the website premierlawgroup.net. Uh, obviously, I'm super active on Facebook, so if you want to check that out, that'd be great. Um, I, I post a lot of stuff on Facebook and then my YouTube channel. Um, and if you want to email me directly, you can always reach me at team t e a m at premierlawgroup.net. I am coming out with an ebook that's coming out that should be coming out here in the next two or three weeks called the five things every syndicator must know to stay out of jail. So uh, if you want to copy that, you can just uh, shoot me an email. Just uh, put this uh, podcast on the raid line and I'll, I'll send you a copy as soon as it's done. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a great name too. I saw you going back and forth and brainstorming <laughs> on social about that. So that's great. Yeah, yeah. So, well, thank you very much for being on the show this afternoon and uh, I look forward to speaking to you in the future. Thanks, Charles. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Harborside Partners Incorporated exclusively.